When my wife and I were raising our kids, uh, one of the things we did when they were very young was uh, teach them a catechism. Catechism is a pattern of questions that are memorized and answers that are memorized. And, and uh, I still remember the beginning of the catechism. And the first question that we would ask is this, who made you? And the answer would be given, God. The second question, what else did God make? Answer, God made all things. Third question, why did God make you in all things? Answer, for his own glory. Oh, you've heard that your whole Christian life. What does that mean? What does that mean? God chose to put himself majestically on display in creation, and I would add in history, so that we could see his greatness and marvel at it and love it, that our hearts would be kindled with affection for him because of his greatness. So the fourth question is, how can you glorify God? Answer, by loving God and doing what he commands. So that's what this sermon is about. God shines the light of his glory. We see it by the exquisite organ of the inner self, which we're going to talk about today, the heart, soul, mind. We perceive it by that exquisitely complex organ and that sight by faith is radiant and glorious and we are moved by it, we're drawn to it, we're melted by it. It shows us the invisible God, and we love him. Jonathan Edwards wrote these amazing words. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approval of it and his delight in it, end quote. <clears throat> now, there's an analogy for us with with physical light to the invisible light of God's glory. Physical light, God created light. God said, let there be light, physical light, and there was light. Uh, I have said for many years, I've come to realize, if God says, let there be light, he must also say, let there be sight. If he's going to emanate light through the universe, but nothing can receive that light, what good is that? He didn't do it for himself. He knows how great he is. He knows completely how great he is. But to put his greatness, his glory on display, the emanation of light, he must create light receptors. He must create, in that case of physical light, the eye. Physical light is received by the eye. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
So the invisible spiritual light of God's glory is also received by an exquisitely complex organ, the heart. The human heart, along with the soul and, and the mind, those internal attributes that are in the text today are receptors of God's glory. For years I've said faith is the eyesight of the soul. I'm not backing away from that. I think it's true. But uh, faith is a, is a capacity that resides in the heart, soul, and mind somewhere in there. It's a capacity of the heart, soul, and mind to receive invisible spiritual light. God created the uh, human beings in his likeness and uh, our bodies have magnificently complex organs. The eye is an exquisitely complex, delicate organ for receiving light. And so also our other organs have their magnificent complexity. Um, but God created the inner nature, the true self of humans with this language, heart, soul, and mind housed in a physical body which is connected with strength uh, that can move in this world and act and show energy. This is what we are. All of that capacity created in the image of God. And God yearns. He desires your heart, your inner nature for himself. He made that for himself. He made your capacity to see and appreciate the light of his glory. He made that for himself, and he's jealous over it. He wants it. Sadly, as we saw last time, sin has entered the world, corrupting that magnificent inner organ. So we're blinded to his glory. We, that, that capacity is still there, but it goes after created things and loves them in deeply corrupt ways, destroyed by sin. The salvation work of God is to heal and restore that inner nature so that it will do finally what it was meant to do, and that is to love God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. God in His grace has begun this mag massive work of healing and of recreation residing in the inner nature of man, the heart, soul, and mind to love God. Look again at the text. Uh, Mark 12, 28 through 34, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So we're in the midst of an overall series in the Gospel of Mark. We've come here to the last week of Jesus' life. He's dealing with a bunch of controversies and opponents, enemies that are trying to trip him up in his words. This man is not like them, though. This man genuinely has a desire to know God. 
It's pretty clear from what Jesus says to him and what he says to Jesus. So he comes and asks this question. Now last week, um, we looked at the two great commandments, the positive commandments, love God, love others. Um, But we also looked at the negative, the prohibitions, the thou shalt nots as well, and saw that we can't just stay positive. Our hearts are so corrupt that we can't just say love and do whatever you want. We will mess that up. And so I took that law, the law, both positive and negative, and applied it to different stages of our salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. That was last week's sermon. This week, and by the way, this sermon that I wrote, I wrote yesterday. I never do that. I don't, I don't write sermons on Saturdays, but I didn't like at all what I had written before. So you can just discard that outline. I don't know, even know what it says. It's no one's fault but my own, all right? But that's what happens when you're gone all week in a Texas prison, and you come back and you look at the sermon, it's like, oh, that's really not good. Um, so... I mean, the problem was I'd gutted a lot of its best points last week, and it would just be a repetition of a lot of the same things. It wasn't there anything wrong. It just wasn't anything new. And I thought we needed to do something else. So I now conceive of the vertical aspect of the two great commandments, to love God, in, in a three-sermon series. I described last week's sermon just a moment ago. This week's sermon is definitional. What does it mean to love God? That's what's in front of us. What does it mean to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Next week is more therapeutic. What do I do if I don't love God? And that sermon doesn't exist either yet, but it will, I promise, God willing, all right? But I just want to talk about how can we be healed and how can we love God if we're distant, if we're drifting, if we're cold, or even if we're normal, but we want to love God more. That's what next week's sermon's about. All right, so now it's definitional. What does it mean? What does it mean to love God? Now, the Hebrew word for love, ahev, um, it's interesting, the first, three of the first four times it's mentioned, uh, trace that out. If we find where it's used, it's fascinating how, it, how, how it's used. They all center around the person of Isaac, interestingly. All right? Or Isaac, uh, ultimately. First, the love of a father for a son in Genesis 22. This is the first use of the word I have in the Hebrew Bible. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and sacrifice him. So that should obviously remind us of, of you know, God's statement at, at Jesus' baptism, also at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son whom I love. But that's the first use of the word love in the Bible, father for a son. The second is for a husband for a wife. Uh, Genesis 24, 67, Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah, so she became his wife, and he loved her. He loved her. Uh, the third use of the word love uh, that I'm listing here um, is Genesis 27, 4. And that's actually where Isaac says to his son Esau, prepare me the kind of tasty food that I love and bring it to me to eat so I may give you my blessing before I die. Well, that's fascinating word study here. The use of the word love, love of a father for a son, the love of a husband for a wife, the love of a man for meat stew, like a savory stew. Same word. What is it then? What is love? We do the same thing in English. We do the same thing in our use of it. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my job. I love my country. I love football. 
I love baseball. Uh, I love chocolate. I love the fall. You know? Same word for a widely ranging array of things. I love Jesus. I love Almighty God. Same word. How do we understand it? Well, uh, for me, the number one mentor I've already quoted here on this, other than the Bible itself, of course, is Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards wrote one of the greatest works that I've ever read, The Treatise on Religious Affections. And the context of Edwards writing that, uh, 1746, was the first great awakening, a, a, a massive revival of religion, a revival of people's hearts toward Christ. One of the greatest revivals, I think the greatest revival of the last 300 years. And there's lots of ferment about Christianity, lots of activities, lives were being turned upside down by the gospel, things were changing, lots of transformation, uh, lots of criticism too, um, people criticizing it, and not liking the, all the displays, the emotional displays. And then, you know, as the years went on, some of those people just reverted to their, the old way they'd been living before. And, and so, you know... The, the idea came up, what is the nature, the tr nature of true religion, of true Christianity? What is it? And uh, no one, I think, was better suited, better gifted, or positioned to answer that question than Jonathan Edwards, pastor of one of the most significant churches in New England, church in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. He was a seasoned pastor uh, with a brilliantly theologically deep mind. He also had an amazingly deep, almost scientific gift of perception. He would study spiders and watch things they did, like just thought they were magnificent. And, and he would write things about the behavior of spiders. He was scientific, but especially about religion, about things of the Bible. And so with this great awakening, there's all this... this uh, ferment, emotion, all of this change, and then, you know, other aspects, tears of joy, shouts of joy, people jumping up and down, throwing themselves on the ground, crying, what is it all? And so he wrote his treatise on concerning religious affections to try to answer the question. And he argued that true conversion toward true Christianity, true religion consists in religious affections or holy affections, which ultimately simply is love. It comes down to love, ultimately. What does he mean by affections? Well, Edward said this very insightful. He said, God has endued the soul with two faculties. One is that by which it is capable of perception and speculation, or by which it discerns and views and judges of things which is called the understanding. The other is that by which it is in some way inclined to them or disinclined or averse from them as liking or disliking or loving and hating, pleased or displeased, approving or rejecting. Those are the affections. So the soul studies and comprehends the world around it as it becomes aware of its understanding and its nature, and then secondly, is either attracted to it or repulsed from it to a greater or less degree. That's what love is. And then true Christianity consists in love. First Peter 1.8, speaking of Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's true Christianity right there, 1 John 1, 8, to love, truly love Jesus Christ. 
And he argues that. So, the soul is doing this all the time. It begins with perception. It begins with understanding, with knowledge. And it moves over to affection. The heart then moves toward or away from that thing. I want to give you an illustration from a recent experience I had with a friend of mine. Jeff Percy lives in Newfoundland. Uh, Came from Canada with his two teenage children, Maria and Luke. Brought them to an NFL football game. Luke, a child after my own heart, is a big Patriots fan. And they were playing the Jets. And it was a rainy day, and they're in the Meadowlands there at an NFL football game. And while Luke was ardently into it, Maria couldn't care less. She didn't know much about American football, its rules. It didn't mean much to her. So third and long, what does that mean? Getting the first down with a great pass, what is that? Who's, which team is which? What, the, what are the colors? You know, it's just nothing. You, you understand. And some of you are like that, exactly. Pastor, move on from the illustration. You don't care about football. All right? But that's what it is. The heart studies, and then the more you understand, then if you are a fan, short for fanatic, you are going to be ardently involved in that. You're going to be passionate and jumping up and down about what's going on. And so it is with everything. We start with the perception. The soul has the ability to study something and, uh, with knowledge. And then the more we understand, then our hearts are kindled and our affections become engaged. Joe Rigney, writing about Edward's treatise, said, it is, it's the inclination of the will that governs our actions. Now, some inclinations of the will are mild and minor. They barely register at all. Like choosing what socks to wear today. These are the socks I wore today. Do you like them? All right. They're a little more snazzy than I usually just go with single color, all right? So, but I knew I was going to be mentioning socks, so I figured I would put these on today. Usually I just want socks that no one cares about or notices. But other inclinations of the will are vigorous, persistent, and lively, like choosing the person you're going to marry. Only the latter, Edwards would term, affections. It's more ardent stimulations of the will. They're more vigorous and sensible. Now, the soul has the power to affect the body. Sam Storms said in talking about Edward's treatise, quote, only the soul or immaterial element is capable of thinking and understanding and thus of loving and hating or experiencing joy or sorrow over what is known. The many physiological sensations we experience, the rush of blood, rapid breathing, goosebumps, chills down the spine and increased heartbeat, etc. Those are the effects, the physical effects of affections. So the body is very complex. The mind, the heart, these, these are complex systems, but it has a physiological effect. Now for me, as I li- studied all this, a number of years ago, I started to see it from my own engineering background with two kind of things. One is a magnet, uh, attraction and repulsion, and the other is a number line of affections in which you kind of lay out strong or weak affections or disaffections. That's how I tended uh, to see it. So we would say, like a magnet, you think about a bar magnet which has an N north and an S for south, and you have two magnets, and so the, the likes repel. You can feel a force. If you put the N and an N together, you can feel an invisible force repelling, pushing away. That's repulsion or disinclination disliking or hating but if you turn one of them around and then they're opposite there's an attraction you feel a force pulling them together 
So then you take all of those arrays of things that you like on up to those things that you love. You put them on the positive side of the number line. So from your perspective over here on the right hand side. And the higher the number, the more ardent your affections are for those things. And then on the negative side, the more uh, ardent your disaffection, dislike, all the way up to we would use the word hate. Uh, zero would be perfect indifference, like Maria at the football game, all right? Um, but the more you learn, the more your heart starts to move one direction or uh, the other. And so, you know, I have that, that sense of repulsion or attraction. Um, I've always been interested in magnets. I was uh, at a car parts store yesterday and there was this little telescoping magnet thing that you could reach out and pick things up. Some of you men know exactly what I'm talking about. It's pretty cool when you drop something um, down. And as a matter of fact, when the guy was replacing the battery in my car, he did drop a nut down there and went and got that telescoping magnet thing. I said, that's going to make it in my sermon. So that's pretty cool. Um, so he's down there, you know, and it just, you know, it just gets attracted to it. So fundamentally, that's how, uh, what our heart does. Now, as you look at that number line, God stands over this whole process and demands, commands, that he be uppermost in our affections. On the number line, he be by far the farthest right thing. Because all of the entities that have existence in the universe are in two categories and only two. Creator and creature. And there's an infinite gap between the two. And anything you love more than the creator is a creature and is the biblical definition of an idol. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That is idolatry. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. In our wickedness and our sin, we are continually loving created things more than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's what we do in our sin. Jesus Christ also, similarly, claims the top spot in our affections. Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. As a matter of fact, he says in Luke uh, 14, 26, our love for Christ should be, uh, should be so great, so ardent, that anything else in the universe will seem like hatred by comparison. So he'll actually use that language to talk about things that in other places he tells us to love. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you just need to understand what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, by comparison, the, the gap between your love for Christ and everything else should be so dramatic that everything else is like hatred on the number line of affections. So that's how I perceive love. It is to be having my heart genuinely attracted to God and the things of God, to love them, be drawn to them. We are told in Scripture, using the same kind of language, that naturally we are repulsed from these things. 
The mind of the flesh is enmity against God, Romans 8. It hates God and his things naturally. We are repulsed from them. Now look at the text. Look at the words that that Jesus used. You are to love the Lord your God with everything you are. What does that mean? Well, with all your heart. What is the heart? The heart, biblically, is the core of your being. And we understand the heart by the functions ascribed to it in the Bible. So what does the heart do? There's a number of, of functions ascribed to the heart in the Bible. For example, it thinks. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as one thinks in his heart, so he is. So the heart thinks. Uh, the heart feels. Romans 9, 2, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So there's passion in the heart. It feels emotions. It decides. The heart makes decisions. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's about Christian giving. So it decides. It makes decisions. It makes plans. Proverbs 16.1. To man belong the plans of the heart. So the heart makes plans. And the heart desires. The heart desires or yearns. Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So to some degree, if you look at that list of five things, it seems there's nothing left for anything else to do. The heart seems to do everything. Uh, And yet there are two more internal words. We're also to love God with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And as I've meditated on, on heart, soul, mind and tried to discern a distinction, I just to some degree can't. I just honor and respect the fact that the Bible uses different words for these different inner attributes of the complex organ of inner self that he has made. So we honor heart, soul, mind, and then try to understand strength as well. So what does it mean to love God with all of your soul? What is the soul? Sometimes the two phrases go together, with all your heart and all your soul. They're just linked together, frequently in Deuteronomy. Uh, but Jonathan's shield bearer, when Jonathan wanted to go attack the, the Philistines, he said, go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. It means I'm all in, I'm all in, heart and soul. All right, so the soul could be said to be the immaterial part of you, the non-physical part of you that is attracted to God, let's say, that relates to God. It is with your soul that you have a relationship, a love relationship with God. But keep in mind, we're told to love God with all of our hearts, so so much for that. So it's hard to distinguish between, between them. The Hebrew word nefesh seems to refer to the animating principle, the principle of life, that which gives us life. We, be, we are alive by the soul, the nefesh. So in Genesis 1.21, it says, God created great whales and every living creature, all these nefeshes to mix up Hebrew and English. So all of these nefesh, these creatures... All right, but especially the human being, that's the, the word nephesh, translated soul, is mostly used for humans in the Bible. Genesis 2 7, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul, a living creature. So uh, I don't know how to take a difference between the heart and soul, but those are different words and they have different aspects that we can only perhaps know fully in heaven the difference. But it's all of your internal self, your heart, your soul, together, loving God. So it's like with every fiber of your living being, with all the parts that make you alive, the mystery of life, with the core of your life, love God. 
That's what this command is. And then it adds mind. The, the mind, I think we understand, you know, that, that it's a part of you that thinks, it reasons, it meditates, it, as I just said a moment ago, understands. So Christ is commanding that you use that, that intellect of yours, that mind of yours, to love him, to think thoughts, good thoughts about him. Your intellect given fully to loving God, to delighting in the depths of, of God's word. The complexities of this book, trying to understand it, loving God with all of your mind, studying it. Your, uh, your imagination, using your imagination to, to uh, worship and admire God. Your mental powers, your science, your philosophy, your logic, your deductive skills, your reasoning powers, powers of observation and argumentation. All that the mind can do, with all of that, love God. I like even the concept of inventing ways of loving God. Sinners invent ways of doing evil. They, they use their inventiveness in doing evil. We, let's invent. Not, I'm not saying invent religion. Let's do what God says. But it's just every day it's like, how can I love you, God? How can I serve you today? And you're thinking of different patterns. So, and then finally it says with all your strength. Now, home base on this for me is just your body that you're going to use your muscles and you're going to exert them in your love relationship with God until you're tired, until you're even exhausted. You're going to love God with all your strength, like you have no strength left because you have loved God so much. And I think that's fine. But I think it's okay to use the word strong going back to those other inner attributes, like a strong mind or a strong will or a strong love. So there's a strength aspect, which I think is fine as well. So... Everything that you have, you're going to give it all to God. I, I like the image of being poured out like a drink offering that Paul uses for himself. 2 Timothy 4, 6, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. The ultimate picture of this is Jesus on the cross. As they gamble for his clothing and his articles, whatever little he had in life physically, it's gone to fulfill prophecy. His life blood poured out. Everything he had to give, he gave to God. And to us, it's a picture of loving God with all your strength. Hold nothing back. Wholehearted devotion. I will praise you, Psalm 9-1. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. Or when David, when the ark was being brought in, it says he danced before the Lord with all his might. He's really exhausted after it was over. Focus, Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, David wrote, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. We have the tendency, don't we, to spare ourselves, to hold back. And we often think we've, we've done the best we can. We never do the best we can. We always have some reserve we held back a little bit. But, you know, you think about athletes. There are some pictures of athletes that really gave everything. Like I read a number of years ago about a woman that was competing in the Ironman triathlon in, uh, in uh, Hawaii, which is just amazing. A 2.4-mile swim. Think about that. Swimming for 2.4 miles, then riding a bike for 112 miles, and then you do a regulation marathon. Well, at the end of that whole race, she had nothing left to give, but she wasn't at the finish line. She was leading, but she had her, her muscle. There was no strength left, and she literally crawled on bloody hands and knees 
to finish third. Oh, but that's a picture, isn't it, of giving everything. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, what should we love about God? Well, everything, of course. But I, I think these are some uh, ways of understanding it. Love God's works. Love God's word. Uh, love God's perfections. Love God's son. God's purposes. It all starts with creation. You know what you know, Mike was praying earlier? Just the beauties of nature. I mean, think of all the beauties of nature. It all starts with the beauties of nature. I'll never forget the first time that um, my daughter Carolyn saw the ocean in Nauset Beach on Cape Cod. I'll never forget it. She was six months old and uh, she was born in a landlocked country called Kentucky. And uh, we brought her to see my mom on Cape Cod and uh, I knew she was about six months old and I knew what was going to happen. I had the foresight to look at her face as we crested the sand dune at Nauset Beach and then looked down at the pounding surf. And it was, there had been a storm the day before, so it was big. And I watched her face, and her eyes were as big as saucers. And wordlessly, for she had no words, she just kept... <laughs> like saying, don't look at me, Dad, look at that. <laughs> That's big, and, and she had no words, but big and awesome and dramatic. So it starts with creation... But then beyond that, at some point, faith enters and you stop looking just at the creature and you realize there is a creator behind it. And so Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen came from what was invisible. We know that by faith. So behind everything physical we see, there's a beautiful, awesome, wise, powerful creator who made all of these things. And so, Isaiah 6, 3, holy, 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 Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And so we study like scientists who want to find God's glory everywhere. Even the little things, Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell thee, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That's how God clothes the grass of the field. God made it. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. God made that flower. And so we, we love it. We also see God's mighty works throughout history. And there's an interaction between God's words and God's, God's work and God's word. So we start to interpret and we see God's mighty works in history. Psalm 111, 2 through 4. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So we study his mighty works in history. And we do it through God's word. We love his word. Oh, how I love your law. Psalm 119.97. I meditate on it all day long. Or I like this one, Jeremiah 15.16. When your words came, I ate them. They were just delicious to me. God's words were delicious to me. Jeremiah said that. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. And so we see God through the word. We see his works in history. We see, like with the Jews, with Israel, how he called out a people for himself, and he rescued them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, with the ten 
plagues, dreadful plagues, and the Red Sea crossing, the might and the power of God, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, and how he, he did awesome things, and how, how he made the, the, the Jordan River stand up on, at flood stage, so they crossed on dry ground. He made the, the walls of Jericho fall down of themselves. There was nothing, there's nothing that God cannot do. And he cared for them in the desert before that with the feeding of the manna and the water from the rock. And then throughout their history, centuries of history, God showed incredible patience with them and tenderness and mercy, but also sometimes judgment and wrath as he would bring in Gentile raiders or conquerors. And we see the wisdom of God in all of that. So. We also talk about God's perfections, God's attributes. They answer the question, what is God like? Uh, one of my favorite parts of New Member Weekend is we go through the um, doctrine of God. And I made a list a number of years ago of 26, the 26 attributes of God through a bunch of systematic theologies I read. And I think it's a comprehensive list. Um, I, there's not going to be another 30 attributes that haven't been discovered yet. Um, this is, these are the ones that are revealed in, in Scripture. But there are lots of supporting Scriptures. And so we walk through these 26 attributes, going through all of them, but we don't go through all of them, but they're just magnificent. Like God's self-existence. That's what makes God different than everything else in the universe. God doesn't need a creator. He is the self-existent one. He gets his existence from himself, not from the creature. We get our existence from God and sustained by food and water and air. But that's God, God's immutability, he, the fact that he never changes. I, the Lord, do not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He can't improve or get worse. The perfections of God, we love these things. We love studying these things. The, 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 per, the, the eternity of God. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's an ancient God, the ancient of days. Immensity which may be the same as omnipresence. Heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, Solomon said. How much less this temple I built. The immensity of God or the omnipresence of God. The omniscience of God. Great is the Lord and mighty in his understanding. There is nothing he can learn from you. Who has ever been God's counselor? Do you have any advice to give God? Would you like to teach God something? Remember that whole thing with Job? It's like, where were you when I made the universe? Remember all that? I wasn't asking your advice. The infinite wisdom and the knowledge of God, his omnipotence, the fact that there is nothing he cannot do. We could go through the whole list and it would be delightful. But these are the perfections. And if you love God, you love them. You love the God that's revealed in these words. But ultimately, you love God's son, Jesus Christ. Because he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had, by his blood, provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We love Jesus. Love him. Especially the cross and the resurrection. Which, when the Holy Spirit convicts you and converts you, he gives you a whole new vision of this disgusting, horrific, bloody death suddenly it turns and becomes glorious does it not does it not display the justice of god romans 3 26 because in his in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand and punished so god needed to display his justice so he could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in jesus but it's also the display of his love 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross is a display of justice and love. But it's also in 1 Corinthians 1, a display of wisdom and power. The cross of Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Power how? He saves a multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation of all of their myriad sins in one afternoon. In one day, he takes away the sins of the world. That's power, friends. And we love it. All right, what applications can we take from this? Well, I was praying and thinking about this yesterday, and um, some time ago recently, I was bit with the alliteration bug, and I just haven't been able to get healed yet. So I'm, I'm going to give you five A's, and we'll close the sermon with these five A's. Awareness, approval, amazement, ardor, and action. That's what it means to love God. First, awareness. We learn about God from his word and his world. We study and see, and we are aware of God, who he is according to his word. Secondly, approval. We approve of what we learn. We are delighted in it. This makes us different than the demons. They're aware, but they hate him. We love him. We approve of what God does. One of the words that's used for approval is amen. When you hear a brother or sister pray, we say amen, meaning I stand with that. It comes from the Hebrew word to stand. Let it stand or I stand with it. I agree. So let it be, that kind of thing. So Psalm 106, 48, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say what? Amen or amen. Either way is okay. All right. Let God be praised. Everyone says amen. That we, we agree. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. And so listen to this, through him, we speak the amen to the glory of God. That's an amazing verse. It's like we agree that the promises are glorious and we want them to happen. We're in with it. We agree. Or then the second to last verse of the Bible don't turn there, I'll tell you what it is. All right, Second Revelation twenty two twenty. he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus. So what's, what's John saying? I want that to happen. I approve of that, I agree with that. Thirdly, amazement. We marvel at the greatness of God's works. Like the single Hebrew, uh, sorry, Greek word, the omega, O, in the doxology in Romans eleven thirty three, oh Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? What's going on in Paul as he's writing that? He's filled with amazement at the gospel. 11 chapters of deep theology. Oh, this is deep. You're going to spend eternity in heaven saying, oh, and oh, and oh, did you see that? And oh, God's going to be revealing his greatness to you again and again. You're going to be overwhelmed. Amazement is part of our love for God. We're amazed at who he is. Fourthly, ardor. I've used the word a number of times in the sermon. It means fire, zeal. Nothing God hates more than lukewarmness. He'll spit it out of his mouth. If you're lukewarm, he'll spew you out like the Laodiceans. We are not lukewarm. He wants our hearts on fire as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We're not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us. There's a fire, and ardor, a zeal. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. It's a fire. I think Psalm 63.1 captures it. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts 
thirst for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I am hungry for you, God. I am thirsty for you. I need you. I want you. And then finally, action. Simply put, you love God by doing what he tells you to do. You love God by obeying his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, First John. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So action, what is he telling you to do? Do it. That will be, enhance your love for God. It will demonstrate love for God. That's what love for God is. So, are you in Christ? Do you know him? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? You cannot love him without first faith in Christ. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then, if you are a Christian, how is your love relationship with God? Next week, we're going to talk about that. And we're talking about how to remedy it and how to grow. So, we come now to a time in the, for the Lord's Supper. Time for us to celebrate this ordinance. I'm going to close our time in the Word and prayer, and then I'm going to invite the deacons to come. Father, thank you for what we've learned today about what it means to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.